0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as your word is opened, though you have given it to be preached by uh, those who know their sin, depend upon your salvation, heard by those who know they are sinners and need your salvation, Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit empowers the preaching of your word to do miracles. We pray that you would accomplish those miracles for which you have given your word, working in its proclamation, in its hearing, in the conviction of our hearts, for the salvation, the sanctification of those who are yours. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter seventeen. We continue in Second Chronicles with the reign of King Jehoshaphat, uh, which, which is a, a fairly long passage, so we will not read the whole passage in its entirety this morning. Um, let's begin. Second Chronicles 17, we'll read verses 1 to 6. Second Chronicles 17, verses 1 to 6. Oh, I'm in First Chronicles. There we are. Jehoshaphat, his son, Asa's son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the balls, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel." Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. So once again, we have a son of David, who we are told is a good and faithful king, breathe a sigh of relief. This, here, he's even compared to David in the introduction. The chronicler begins his account, you can see, by drawing this stark contrast between Jehoshaphat and Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. We see how Jehoshaphat was strengthened against them. We see that he's not behaving like they are. He's not uh, leading his people to worship the balls. Of course, these two nations are kin. They have a blood relationship. Yet the the inhabitants of Judah, they they did long for the Israelites to repent, to return to God, and they, they rejoiced when they did. But at this time, we know that the northern kingdom of Israel is embroiled in the worship of Baal, all kinds of idolatry, acknowledging God in their own way, but happily rejecting him in their sin. And during the reign of Jehoshaphat, Israel is being ruled by perhaps its most notorious king, King Ahab. Because Chronicles focuses particularly on the line of David, we don't get that thorough picture of Ahab that we find in the book of Kings. We don't see Jezebel, we don't see this contest between Elijah and the priests of Baal. So this gives us an interesting picture of Ahab when he sort of walks into this story as a fully formed side character, a picture of the state of Israel at this time and a contrast that we are meant to draw with Jehoshaphat who is reigning in Judah. So let's meet Ahab in chapter 18 verses 1 to 27. Now, Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. After some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him, and induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? He answered him, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men, and said to them, shall we go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, and they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Shinanah, made for himself Horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And he answered, Go up and triumph. They will be given into your hand. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Shanana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber and hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. Thus far the word of the Lord. So here we have a very striking episode. Jehoshaphat has made a marriage alliance with Ahab, and then he goes to Israel, and Ahab wines and dines Jehoshaphat, and then he pleads with him to go with him to battle. And Jehoshaphat responds, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. But first Jehoshaphat desires that they would seek the word of the Lord before going to battle. He is treating Ahab here like his spiritual kin. Let's inquire the Lord together. Let's hear it together. Let's make a choice together and act together based on what the Lord tells us. So Ahab calls out 400 prophets, and it becomes pretty apparent right away that these men have a lot more in common with actors than with prophets, they come out, and they've got their victory songs already prepared, and there's this beautiful scene with the king sitting in splendor over the city, and the prophets are dancing around them, and Zedekiah's made these horns, and he's performing their conquest against Syria, and Jehoshaphat is a little bit suspicious. I think it's pretty apparent to him right away that he is surrounded by this chorus of professional bootlickers, And this suspicion only increases as he says, is there anyone else that we can ask the word of the Lord from? And I don't know about you, but I have to remind myself regularly when I'm reading uh, the the words and the actions of Ahab, I have to remind myself that this is likely a a really tall, imposing, warrior-like uh, you know, kingly, majestic-looking man, the type of person who would have held on to power in Israel, because whenever I hear Ahab talk, it's hard not to imagine a giant, sulky toddler, this sort of, like, Elmer Fudd-looking character, you know? Is there anyone else that we can ask, yeah, but I hate him. <laughs> well, why do you hate him, Ahab? Because he never says anything nice about me. How how does Ahab choose which prophets to listen to? How does he choose which prophets to reject? He asks himself, are they going to say something nice about me? Are they going to prophesy good things about me? Jehoshaphat even rebukes him for saying this. You can't say that. This foolishness becomes all the more evident when Micaiah comes. First, he's prepared to go out to Ahab's court. He's prepared like somebody who's been giving their talking points before coming out on a talk show. This is what you're going to say. All the prophets are speaking favorably. You speak favorably too. Micaiah says, no, as the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. When he's asked to prophesy, first Micaiah parrots what all of the other prophets have said. Sarcastically enough that Ahab seems to know right away that he is mocking this this picture of, of prophecy that is being displayed around him. Ahab can tell that Micaiah is not speaking honestly because even Ahab knows that the other prophets were just telling him what he wanted to hear. Ahab knows that Micaiah isn't afraid of him, doesn't depend on him like the other prophets. He knows Micaiah has more integrity than the other prophets. So then Micaiah gives him this majestic vision of the heavenly council where God plans in his sovereignty that a spirit will go and lead Ahab and the prophets to be ruined by their own sin. Their lies will lead to destruction. Their folly, their self-flattery will lead them to ruin. It's God orchestrating the loosing of people to the consequences of their own sin, very much like what we see in Romans 1, where Paul says that God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why did he do this? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So our first point this morning looks at this folly of Ahab. The folly of those who turn to the wisdom of flatterers rather than the Lord is self-destructive. The folly of those who turn to the wisdom of flatterers rather than the Lord is self-destructive. How does Ahab respond once he knows, once he's sure that Micaiah has spoken honestly? He's furious. Notice how Micaiah began his prophecy lamenting for Israel lamenting for these people who are scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Their wicked king has abandoned them and is leading himself to their own destruction. How sorrowful he is for these people, and how does Ahab respond? Didn't I tell you he wasn't going to say anything nice about me? He interjects this lament for his people and thinks it's all about him. Ahab enters this story to paint for us this vivid picture of the lunacy into which we descend when we follow the wisdom of our passions rather than God. Ahab is about to go to battle. He could die. His life is on the line, and yet, even when his life hanging in the balance, he is not interested in the truth. He is only interested in his truth. Whatever answer will most flatter his pride, he knows Micaiah is more honest than these paid actors. He doesn't care. When Micaiah warns him that the battle will be his doom, he throws him in prison. So utterly does he hate being warned that he is a sinner and being warned of the judgment of God that he would punish Micaiah rather than listening to him. This is the idiocy that sin leads us to. Consider today what is perhaps the most common argument against the Christian gospel, that it is unloving, that it is intolerant. The truth content of the gospel is irrelevant in that objection. It is rejected on the grounds that it is offensive to those who hear it. Think for a moment. There might really be a God who sits in judgment over all his creatures, is wrathful against sin, yet has graciously provided salvation from it. Aren't you interested, first and foremost, in whether that is true? Forget whether you want to hear it. Wouldn't it be better to know if it's real? It might be true that you are a sinner. People despise being called sinners. They hate the idea that the actions and the behavior that they love and depend on could somehow be transgressions against a holy God. But if they are, don't you want to know? Wouldn't it be loving to try and show you this if it was true? Now we see this folly in the world all the time with those who object to Christianity. But notice in our passage today, we are dealing only with people who acknowledge, who claim to be God's people, who say that God is God. These performing prophets claim to be speaking for Yahweh. Jesus and the apostles tell us this same attitude of false prophecy, feeding people their own desires and saying that that these words from God that will affirm them will persist even in the church. That false prophets will happily send their listeners to hell with lies. But perhaps more astonishing, there will always be people like Ahab looking for someone who can flatter them instead of speak truth to them. In an age when the church calls itself the opponent of relativism, it is amazing how many Christians define what is true based on what they want to be true. Christian bestseller lists are full of self-flattering false prophets. William Paul Young in The Shack, Sarah Young in Jesus Calling literally put words in the mouth of God targeted to say exactly what would most placate you which would most make you feel comfortable where you are. Listen to what Sarah Young claims Jesus himself says through her own pen. This is what she writes as the words of Jesus. Sarah Young's Jesus says, You are on the right path. Listen more to me and less to your doubts. I'm leading you along the way I designed just for you. Therefore, it is a lonely way, humanly speaking. But I go before you as well as alongside you, so you are never alone. Do not expect anyone to understand fully my ways with you any more than you can comprehend my dealings with others. Did you see what she did there? Sarah Young's Jesus tells her readers that whatever path they are on is right, and that nobody else can understand what God's doing in your life, so if they come and tell you that you might be on the wrong path or that you need to repent, they are de- they're definitely wrong. They don't know what God's doing in your life. How many people have been led like Ahab to their own doom because of false prophecies like those from Sarah Young's Jesus, happily having their sin affirmed, rejecting accountability even to their own destruction because Sarah Young's Jesus said that was okay. Positive affirmation preaching is toxic and pervasive as a poison in today's church. You can certainly go to your prosperity preachers like Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen, Brian Houston at Hillsong. You can go to the New Apostolic Reformation with men like Mike Bickle at uh, International House of Prayer or Bill Johnson at Bethel Church. There is a whole genre of positive influencer affirmation Christian literature that ranges from totally unhelpful to heretical. Rachel Hollis, perhaps the the, the preeminent Christian, calls herself a Christian influencer, wrote a book called Girls Stop Apologizing. And so often, if a credible case is put forward why this so called Christian teaching is false, why it runs counter to God's word, what is the main objection given in support of these teachers? You're so cruel to try and take that away from me. You have no idea how important that author was to me, how much I needed them, how important the music at their church was to me, how much comfort I took from that when I needed it. I need them. The question of whether or not these teachers are lying about God almost becomes irrelevant. The only question is whether they give us that sense of comfort. Whether they help us feel okay where where we're at. They give us that gemütlich, that sense of being warm and cozy with their book in the morning and happy in the place that we're at and not needing anyone to tell us to go into a different direction. They leave us like those poor, sick people. Those truly sick people who show up at the faith healing stadium shows and get shuffled to the back so that they're Cons can't be exposed by people who actually need healing. What good to you is a comfortable lie? So take heed of the folly of Ahab. But this story is not ultimately about Ahab. It is about Jehoshaphat. Why does Jehoshaphat still agree to go to battle with Ahab? Why does he still say, I am as you are, your people are as my people? This is our second point this morning. Those who maintain a common cause with the wicked will be influenced by them. Let's continue reading Second Chronicles 18, 28. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your royal robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and they went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. As soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him and Jehoshaphat cried out and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. For as soon as the captains of the chariots saw that this was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king of Israel was propped up with his chariot facing the Syrians until evening. Then at sunset he died. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to the king Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked? And love those who hate the Lord. Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you. For you destroyed the Asheroth of the land and have set your heart to seek God. So Ahab clearly thought he was cunning in battle. He was going to make sure Micaiah was a liar. He was going to hide among the soldiers because he knew they'd target the king of Israel. He's going to make Jehoshaphat look like the king of Israel, use him as a decoy. Despite all of this, despite Jehoshaphat's foolishness, despite Ahab's cunning, God is still in control of the battle. Jehoshaphat is protected. And Ahab, God ensures a random soldier fires a random arrow that flies straight into the weak point of Ahab's armor. God miraculously preserves Jehoshaphat and ensures that judgment chases down Ahab. When Jehoshaphat returns, he's met by Jehu, the son of Hanani. You'll remember that Hanani was the prophet Uh, who spoke to Jehoshaphat's father Asa, we read that last week, after Asa made that disastrous alliance with Syria, Hanani warned him what it would lead to. So there seems to be a deliberate act of God here to send the son of Hanani to prophesy to the son of Asa, so that the son of Asa can realize that he has committed the same folly as his father. Now, Jehoshaphat might not have realized that he had fallen into the same sin, the same trap as Asa, because while Asa's foolish alliance was with Syria, Jehoshaphat's was with Israel, his kin, those who shared his heritage. Jehoshaphat took their shared claim to be God's people as satisfactory, even even to go with Ahab into a battle that God had not told him to fight, that God had warned them against going into. Jehoshaphat felt this burden because he's got this shared history with Ahab. He's kind of like a brother. But Hanani tells him his alliance with Ahab is essentially equivalent to Asa's alliance with Syria. He has helped the wicked and those who hate the Lord. Ahab is not one of God's people. He is an enemy of God. The covenants of God's people were offered to him and he spurned them. And no amount of flattery and whining and dining should have convinced Jehoshaphat that they were on the same side, that they could unite against common enemies. The New Testament regularly tells believers to test those among them who seem to be turning from the gospel whether it is against the Gnostics, as John warns, against antinomianism, as as Paul warns, against the Judaizers, as Paul warns the Galatians, against uh, those who are leading people into sin, as John warns in Revelation, we are taught every time recognize and test and expose anyone teaching a deviation from the gospel. Liberal movements in theology almost always follow the same playbook in the church. They have for centuries. Propose a theologically novel idea, but then say, I am still a Christian holding this theologically novel idea, and for you to cast me out would be divisive. But what God tells us is division, is to reject his word, his truth, and his gospel. That is division in the church according to God's word. If you bring a football To a basketball game, you cannot tell the other players that they are being divisive for not letting you throw it around as a part of the game. You have to recognize, sorry, but you're not playing basketball. And if, for the sake of not being divisive, we let every player come out and play their own game, one's got a bat, another's got clubs, somebody set up a soccer net and he's going to kick the ball, then we haven't... We haven't just allowed a lot of different versions of basketball to take place. We have made the definition of basketball incoherent. There is no more basketball. And this happens in the church. There is no more gospel. There is no more Christianity. The definition is meaningless. If we do not see deviations from the truth as division, rather than recognizing... Deviations from the truth is division. Jehoshaphat saw that Ahab was wicked. He had no excuse. He watched him rebuke Micaiah when they knew that Micaiah was speaking truthfully. He knew it was wrong to affirm Ahab and fight his battles with him. Yet he gave Ahab this false sense of kinship. Yeah, you're the same people with the ones who are holding on to the covenant of David. The covenant of Aaron who were worshiping at the temple. Yeah, you and me, same, same thing. This would have weakened Jehoshaphat and his people's own sense of what made them distinct as those who were holding on to the covenants of God. So let's continue to read what Jehoshaphat does after he is rebuked. 2 Chronicles 9, 19, sorry. Verse 4. Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem And he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land of all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality, or taking bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem, and he charged them, thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord, in faithfulness, and with your whole heart. Whenever a case comes to you from your brothers who live in the cities concerning bloodshed, law, or commandment, statutes, or rules, then you shall warn them They may not incur guilt before the Lord, and wrath may not come upon you and upon your brothers. Thus you shall do. You will not incur guilt. And behold, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the governor of the house of Judah, and in all the king's matters. And the Levites will serve you as officers. Yield courageously, and may the Lord be with the upright." So our third point this morning is this, true wisdom judges in the fear of the Lord even when threatened by men. True wisdom judges in the fear of the Lord even when threatened by men. Jehoshaphat instructs his judges to follow the exact wisdom that he had just watched Ahab and his prophets reject. They are not going to be affected by bribes, by fear, by love of things in this world. He tells them, you will be courageous because this will take courage. You will let God define justice. You would hate more than anything to be found unjust in the eyes of God. And you will let no person and their desires change God's picture of justice for you. Joshua wants his judges to be more like Micaiah. <laughs> who he just watched go to prison because he would not say anything other than what God had given him to say. He would not judge apart from God's wisdom. Friends, to judge, to assess, to evaluate, to speak regarding an idea, a school of thought, an action, to use God's word to do that, even when there is pressure around you to conform to worldly judgment, will take courage. It can be genuinely scary to go out into the world with the word of God as your final authority. To stand only on the gospel. And this, I have known, this will be so much harder when your opponents call themselves Christians. When they, when they stand in front of the world with you, and they point at you to the world, and they say, look, look how much better than, than them I am. When they create a gospel that they have catered to the desires of men and contrast it with yours and join with the world in scorning you, we must entrust ourselves in faith to the greater judge. We must truly believe that he is the one who brings justice against the Ahabs and will be faithful to the Micaiahs. Jesus warns his disciples. When he sends them out, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. (laughs) Reality will one day be painfully clear to all those who lived to suit their own passions. And on that day, God will be faithful to those who are his. Let's read of God's faithfulness in this long episode that closes the life of Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came up against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are at Hazon Tamar, that is, and Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O God, Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations and your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Beniah, son of Jael, son of Mathaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in the battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord in your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem believe in the Lord your God and you will be established believe his prophets and you will succeed and when he has taken counsel had taken counsel with the people he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever and when they began to sing the praise of the the praise of the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end to the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, precious things which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Barakah for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the place has been called the Valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Thus Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai, He walked in the ways of Asa's father and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. The high places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, joined with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted wickedly, and joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish. And they built the ships of Ezion-Geber, and Eliazar, the son of Dodavahu of Marishah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. Our closing point this morning is this. To trust in the Lord is to know lasting victory when all those who love flattery and fear of men will perish. To trust in the Lord is to know lasting victory when all those who love flattery and and fear men will perish. Jehoshaphat's preparation for battle and how the battle goes stands in stark contrast with the battle that we have just seen take place with Ahab. When Ahab carts out these paid prophets when they're asked for, instead, Jehoshaphat goes to seek the Lord in the temple, which was dedicated as the place where God's people could call out to him. While Ahab tells his prophets to flatter him, to say what he wants to be true, Jehoshaphat comes humbly before God. He seeks to know what God would say. He genuinely believes that only victory can come from God. And he is going to trust whatever God says, and he will give God glory for what is true. And so, just as God did with Micaiah, again he raises up a true prophet who speaks for the Lord. Jehaziel says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then in the battle, as was true in Ahab's battle, the prophet was right. God controls the outcome. In Ahab's battle, God's sovereign plan was to preserve Jehoshaphat despite his folly and to punish Ahab. In this battle, God lets his people watch him get glory by triumphing over every last enemy, watching them destroy each other before they even get there. The Chronicle then ends his account of Jehoshaphat with a short episode of another foolish alliance with Israel because the Bible is history. These aren't little morality tales where the hero learns his lesson and then he lives happily ever after. Jehoshaphat is a man he is not the coming messiah he makes the same mistake twice indeed his marriage alliance with ahab we are going to see has perhaps worse consequences for judah than anything else that he has done in his lifetime jehoshaphat shows us the fallibility of men who desire to be faithful and judge righteously he was weakened by flattery he was wooed by this sense of kinship we we see this many times in church history Those who we would otherwise call faithful, many wise, faithful teachers have been weighed down in this particular area. They've been so desirous to ecumenically welcome, to not be cruel in the face of those who have rejected the gospel, that they have publicly showed them affinity and kinship, which has led many people astray. There have been ecumenical movements in this past century that have even seen prominent teachers publicly affirm the Catholics as as having their differences, but at least affirming the same gospel. And this opened the door for many, many Protestants to be drawn in and say, well, if if they're the same thing, I'm going to go where all the pomp and the artistry is and that emotional, fulfilling sense of tradition. Phrases like the moral majority or the Judeo-Christian ethic can very quickly lead to a false sense of kinship with those who do not fear the Lord or love the gospel. And this has confused many Christians on what the gospel is, on who they are in relation to the world, who they are in relation to God. Brothers and sisters, to bestow on any, anyone that we want to kinship to give them the name of brother, weakens our own understanding of the gospel and our own love of it and will harm those who we want to teach it to. Jesus tells us there are many ways to destruction. The way of the world is wide. It is wide enough for the degenerate sinner who publicly flaunts the rejection of God and for the moral pseudo-believer with whom we want to feel a sense of kinship. But the door of life is narrow. It is as narrow as the true gospel, as the name of Jesus Christ died for our sins and risen from the dead, taking the wrath of God and giving us his righteous robes, the place of sons, so that we might inherit what he deserves in heaven forever with God. Consider the apostle Paul. Paul deeply loved his kin, his fellow Israelites. He said he would have seen himself cut off from salvation if it would bring them in. But for Paul to love them was the desire for them to be grafted back into the tree from which they had been cut off, not to be affirmed in their sin, but to have it exposed so they could repent and trust in Jesus. Showing this love is one of the hardest things in the world, especially when all the world around you is telling you, preach more like Ahab's prophets. Preach the gospel they told you to say when you were coming in. Even if it leaves them in damnation, that's fine. That was their choice. Let, 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 them, let me define God on my terms. Let me decide who Jesus is. Let me decide what a good person looks like. I'm sorry, friends, but we believe truth exists. What is more, we think that the truth is good news. We will love this world more than they love themselves. With patience, with grace, With gentleness, we will love them in the truth. And for the love of our Savior, we will do so. I would also give a final warning, which does lead to a comfort, to those who perhaps know that you are emotionally dependent upon teachers or authors or TV preachers that call themselves Christians, but you know are preaching a message that's at least running a little bit against the grain of what you hear when the word is plainly read and preached it runs like sandpaper against the gospel when it is clearly proclaimed against the scriptures when they are read you know that they are preaching a message that emphasizes your strength in yourself how great you are in and of yourself Loving the light that is in you, as the Quakers used to say, a message meant to affirm your strength, feed your pride, slowly and subtly make you hate the idea of repenting. You tell yourself, they can't be that bad. After all, they're a bestseller. They have the most books in the Christian bookstore. They're in partnership with so many Christian organizations. You feel like, it would be stodgy and legalistic to start nitpicking and criticizing something that helped you so much, that you enjoy so much, that you depend on so much. Friends, there is nothing legalistic about giving up a false gospel. It might very well save you from the new kind of attractive legalism where we, we, we dress it up in self-actualization and positive thinking and doing your best to prove that you are good to God. Popularity does not prove something is wicked. That's something that many indie music fans need to learn. But scripture does give us many examples to show us that lies will often be popular, that many will flock to them. Popularity does not prove something is sound. The pop teachers who flatter and soothe us with their so-called positive Christianity perform for us like Ahab's prophets with the most money, with the best show, with the best feeling they can give you, with their band and the lights or their brilliantly written books, deliberately hiding the fact that they do not care whether you are doomed like Ahab as long as they profit off of you. I know Giving up teachers who have flattered you and filled up your sense of self can be like quitting an addiction. But that comfort that is found in the truth and the gospel, that's lasting comfort. That is real comfort. That is peace with God. That is comfort that will last long after those who have flattered you and given you a false sense of comfort, will have led all of those who have rested in them instead of the gospel to destruction. If you are not sure about what you are reading, what you are watching, what you are taking in, find an elder. Talk to them. We we want to have that conversation with you. We want you to be further rooted in the truth of the gospel so that you can be assured of real and lasting comfort in Christ and only Christ. When the lies of this world have left all those who follow them like Ahab doomed, God will preserve those who come to him humbly and repent that we have nothing in ourselves to make us anything other than Ahab, but if we can trust in God alone, if he would be gracious to us, then we will look to him alone for deliverance and praise God, he is gracious to us. He sent his only perfect son to take our place that we could be kept and held eternally as his own. As Jehoshaphat received deliverance, so does Christ deliver everyone who is his and holds on to them their whole lives even as we face the strongest, the boldest, the angriest of foes rooted in the things of this world. So do not fear them. Keep your hope in the promises of Jesus. Don't be ashamed that you do not walk in those incoherent, self-aggrandizing, false gospels of this world. Don't be ashamed that you want to know what's really true, that you would like to be corrected if you are not resting in the truth, and that you would like to help others to rest in a reality that is infinitely better than those individual narratives they have written in their own hearts. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we are. Yes, we are destined for wrath. But those truths point us to the salvation that God has provided in Christ. And it is not just real, it is the best of all possible truths. Praise God for that true gospel, that it is the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see in Jehoshaphat a common stumbling block and we see in Ahab a common folly. God, it is not the sweetest part of our road as Christians to stand on the gospel when it is being attacked, to stand up for the truth, even to deny kinship to those who preach a different gospel. That is hard. We don't need to be ashamed that it's hard. The Bible tells us it will be hard. It's the hardest work we will do. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that at the end of this hard road through which you sanctify us, through which you purge our idols, you prepare us for an eternity of comfort better than anything that we or a really popular, skilled author could make up for ourselves. So, Father, may we go to the gospel, persevere in digging into only what is true, in hope and trust that this is where lasting peace and rest and comfort lies, that we can know not only in eternity, but begin to know by resting in the peace we have with you even today, and we thank you that while we were still enemies, Christ died, that we could know that peace even now, which we praise you and love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.